The reading for today is Daniel chapter 8. Daniel chapter 8. We have Bibles. If you would like to follow along, you're welcome to grab one now or during the next song. They're on the table right outside the door there. And if you don't have a Bible for yourself, you're welcome to just take it home and keep that one. Daniel chapter 8, we'll read all 27 verses this morning. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward. And no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. And on account of transgression... The host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling the truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking. And another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place, and the host to be trampled. He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be properly restored. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of Uli. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. 
But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand upright. He said, Behold, I am going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. In the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will rise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power, and he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy place. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence. And he will magnify himself in his heart. And he will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But he will be broken without human agency. The vision of the evenings and mornings, which has been told, is true. But keep the vision secret, for it pertains to many days in the future. Then... I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was none to explain it. As we considered Daniel chapter 7 last week, we noted that the first six verses of Daniel were quite different than the last six verses chapters, rather, of Daniel. Hopefully it's not going to be one of those days. (laughs) Chapters 1 through 6, in a historical fashion, tell us how to stand alone for God. That's what Daniel is doing. Chapters 7 through 12, not through history, but through prophecy, apocalyptic literature, we are Reminded why it is worthwhile to stand for God. So not just how to do it, but it tells us why we ought to do it. It incentivizes us, God willing, to stand, particularly in the midst of a culture that hates him. If you have your Bibles open still, run to the last verse of chapter chapter 8, verse 27. Daniel Mentions that he was exhausted, he'd been sick for days. But then notice the next sentence. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. That ought to be the theme. It's the title of our sermon this morning. My sermon. You're listening to it. I guess it's yours. I don't know. It's the title of the sermon. That's better. (laughs) A sermon. Maybe that's less direct. But the theme of our lives ought to be the same. I carried on in the king's business. Whether tired or exhausted or overwhelmed, we carry on doing God's bidding. In a very real sense, in the the last days of Jesus' life, when he has his disciples gathered around him, 
The last will and testament that he offers in John 13 through 17. In chapter 16, he says this, These things I have spoken to you so that you may be kept from stumbling, so that you might carry on in the king's business, is what Jesus says to his disciples. So looking at the entirety of this chapter, I've split it into four sections. The introduction, which is verse 1. The vision, 2 through 14. The interpretation, 15 through 26. And the application, verse 27. Believe it or not, the application is we ought to carry on in the king's business. It's in that verse. We've just looked at it. And in the midst of considering this chapter together, which is not going to be a very clean walkthrough, based on the nature of the literature type and my lack of ability to make it clean and clear. But I do hope that we will see both the historical fulfillment of what Daniel is writing about as well as the typical significance or what he's pointing to in the future and how it applies to us. So, the introduction. I heard on more than one occasion when I mentioned four or five months ago, whenever it was that I was thinking about starting Daniel or had just started it, oh, are you just going to preach the first six chapters? And there is a tendency to just skip over the the last six. It's common and it's understandable. And and now that I'm two chapters in, I understand why people do that. And I hope it's not too late for me to bail out if I need to one of these weeks. But it can be a real headache looking at Daniel chapters 7 through 12. The problem is if we, if we skip over it and, and don't deal with it adequately, it's going to leave us with a gap in our biblical knowledge. And unfortunately, due to the type of literature it is and the days in which we live, this gap will be filled in with crazy attempts and wacky efforts from those who use the USA Today or the New York Times along with their own dreams and visions or charts or ideas or whatever to interpret these things for us. These visions are hard to understand. At least they're hard for me to understand. But that doesn't mean that we have a right to avoid them. Daniel was bothered by his vision. The vision was hard for Daniel to understand. Looking back at the end of chapter 7 from last week, my thoughts were greatly alarming me, Daniel records, and my face grew pale. He was bothered. Daniel was bothered by the visions. He was bothered by what the visions meant for the people of God. And Daniel 8 ends in a similar fashion. We've just looked at it in verse 27. I was exhausted, Daniel writes, and sick for days. I was astounded by the things that I had seen. Now, these descriptions, greatly alarming, my face grew pale, exhausted, sick for days. This is from the man who saw the visions, from the man who was aided by the Holy Spirit of God to record them for us. They're, they're alarming him. They're making him physically sick. And so it is not uncommon for us to feel the same way. What does it mean? Does it mean what it looks like it means? What does it mean for me? These, these chapters can be very intimidating. And that's okay. 
It's normal to be intimidated by them. The God who wrote them is quite intimidating. When we get to Daniel chapter 8, it's important, just time scale, when we go into Daniel, you may remember, they're teenagers when they're taken away from their homeland into Babylon. He's not a teenager anymore. He's an older man, much more mature, not green behind the ears. The exile actually is nearing the end of its 70 long years. And Daniel knows that because he's aware of the prophecies that he had read in Jeremiah and Isaiah. Because the people of God knew that the exile was nearing its end, there would have been a sense of great anticipation among the Jewish people, and rightly so. They had been cooped up and bound, persecuted by the Babylonians in captivity for 70 years, and the time is nearing an end. So that feeling of returning to a homeland, of worshiping in a rebuilt temple, it's just around the corner for them. There's excitement. Good times are coming for God's people. But Daniel, Daniel knew different because God had given him these visions. He knew that God's people would return, and he knew that when they did return, when the exile was over, that they were going to face, face even harsher persecution that they, than they had from the Babylonians. Good times were not around the corner for the people of God. Bad times were. Difficult times were. Suffering is what was around the corner for them. Not just for the immediate generation, but for future ones as well. Including ours. Prosperity preachers must never consider the prophets. Not seriously. Now, imagine being in Daniel's shoes, older, mature, child of God, and having to be the bearer of this news. Everybody's excited, looking forward to better times ahead. Imagine being Daniel. You're the one that shows up at the celebration to mark the end of the 40-year exile, and you have to interrupt the celebration and make this announcement. It's about to get really bad, friends. Daniel was terrified at this. He was worried. Leadership can be a heavy burden to bear, and Daniel is realizing that. In the third year, he writes, of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. So Belshazzar was the, was the king during the vision of chapter 7. This is two years later. Belshazzar is still the king. The visions are similar, as you may have noticed in the reading. I think it's helpful if we think about it from this vantage point. Daniel 7 is, is a bigger picture including more of a time span, a broader section or slice of time. In Daniel 8, God is focusing in, zooming in on very specific details in a much smaller window of time. Let's 
move on and look at the actual vision that Daniel sees. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, he notes where he was, specific geography. 200 miles away from Babylon, he's not there. That's important for us to realize. Daniel's not physically there. He is seeing himself, seeing things as if he was there. I mean, that's part of the vision, and he makes it clear that he's not there in person by mentioning time and again, I looked, I looked, or I saw. Three times in verse 2, again in 3, 4, 7, 15, which makes us ask the question, what did Daniel see in this vision? He saw a ram with varying size horns, a goat with a conspicuous horn, four conspicuous horns after that, and then a rather small horn. That's it. What in the world does that mean? Well, at this point, we have no idea. But let's look specifically at these things. Daniel sees a ram, verses 3 and 4. He sees a ram that has two horns. One was longer than the other, and the longest one sprang up after the shorter one. And this ram is pushing west, north, and south. And nothing, no beast could stand up against him. He did whatever he wanted and became great. Despite its power, the ram was lopsided. One horn was bigger than the other. A clear picture of the Medo-Persian Empire. And again, I'm not making that up. We read that in the reading as well. And that's why, I mean, we're not going to look at the vision and then the interpretation. I mean, it's in my notes that way, but we really can't wait that long to mention it. So I'm just going to mention it along the way and make it extra confusing for everybody, especially me. But in the Medo-Persian Empire, the Medes were initially the stronger power. But soon the Persians outgrew them, and this uneven empire was established between the two. If you go back to chapter 7, this unevenness of the Medo-Persian empire is represented in a lopsided bear, if you remember. It was bigger on one side. The same picture is being painted. But here it's not a lopsided bear. It's a long horn and a longer horn. Now, Again, remember, Daniel is having this vision before these two nations become superpower, become a superpower. This is detailed biblical prophecy that was proven to be 100% accurate by history as it played out centuries later. In, In fact, the details here are so precise, most liberals and moderates who pretend that they're not liberal write off Daniel chapter 8, and say, no, it was written after the fact because the details are just too precise. My hope is that we'll come to the text and believe what God has said and trust that there's nothing special about Daniel being able to do this, but there's a lot special about a God who knows what's coming, who is willing to warn his people and give them what they need in order to live through the difficulties that are around the corner in their lives. So Daniel sees a ram. He also sees a goat, verse 5 and following. This goat appears from the west, and it moves quickly across the world, so fast that its feet didn't touch the ground. We would say it's a flying goat, and there's a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Not a unicorn, but a conspicuous horn between the eyes of this goat, and the goat rushed at the ram in mighty wrath. He struck the ram and shattered the ram's two horns. Remember, nothing, nothing could stop 
the demolition path of this ram. And then just like that, poof, there's a goat on the scene. And it destroys the ram. And this is referring to the Greek empire. Daniel tells us that in verse 21. And the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king, verse 21 tells us, which was Alexander the Great. History shows that Alexander the Great destroyed the Medo-Persian Empire in record time. That's what Daniel is seeing here. With the ram with two different size horns, the goat shows up, destroys it just like that. That's how history played out a couple centuries later. Verse 8, the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And we begin to see the pattern here. Four horns show up. Second half of verse 8. As soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. History reveals again. It played out like this. After the death of Alexander the Great, four of his generals shared the Greek empire. They were Macedonia, Thrace, and Asia Minor, Syria, and Egypt, the four winds of the earth. So none of them had the power. The scriptures say right there, none of them had the power Alexander the Great did or the first king. It's specifically the way the scriptures say it, but that's who it's referring to. They, They divided the kingdom into fours, and each of them ruled in their specific area. And then Daniel sees something else developing in verse 9. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land, the promised land, the holy land, the land where God's people would then be because the exile would be over. Believe it or not, history evidences that this rather small horn was Antiochus IV. I believe it's the great-great-grandson of one of the kings that took Alexander the Great's place. He called himself Antiochus Epiphanes, and historically that's how we refer to him. This chapter is primarily about his brief but brutal rule. That's the emphasis that Daniel is making. And it's not so much because he himself was significant. Most of us maybe have never heard much about Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus IV. But why does God spend time detailing these specifics? Not because he himself was significant, but because he caused great harm to God's people. And God loves his people. Antiochus referred to himself as Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes means God manifested. He nicknamed himself, here's the revelation of God. Here I am. The Jews had another nickname for him. They called him Antiochus Epimenes, which is Antiochus the madman. He thought he was God, they thought he was mad. Let's look at 
what Daniel continued to see play out with regard to this little horn, verses 10 through 12. This Antiochus IV designed a systematic program to get rid of God's people, to decimate their faith, and to destroy their worship. Look with me at verse 10. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the host and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. These hosts are not the stars in the sky, nor are they angels out there somewhere. It is the people of God. Time and again in the scriptures, that is how we are referred to. The host. He was intent on persecuting the people of God. We saw that that was his intent in verse 9. He turned toward, he grew exceedingly great toward the beautiful land. He was intent on getting rid of God's people, but not just getting rid of God's people. It even magnified itself, verse 11, to be equal with the commander of the host, with God himself. We can see that in in the way that he nicknamed himself, but he elevates himself. He goes a bit further, second half of verse 11. He removed the regular sacrifice to God. And the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. So here's Antiochus IV persecuting the people of God, opposing the person of God, and eradicating the worship of God. He has a systematic program designed to rid God's people of life, faith, and worship. Why? Why would these things happen? Verse 12. On account of transgression... The host will be given over to this horn, along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. Just as God had done in the days when the exile began, when he used Babylon to conquer his people, he now allows Antiochus Epiphanes to prosper in his program of riddance. So that that answers a little bit with regard to the why. It was the transgression of God's people against God and his law. But we're asking a question that isn't really in the text. Why isn't there? There is a question in the text. Look at verse 13. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long? How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply? While the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled. How long? It's as if sympathetic seraphim are speaking to one another. Daniel overhears these angels talking, asking the question, How long will the regular sacrifices not happen? How long will God not receive the worship that he deserves? How long will the holy place and the holy people be trampled upon? This is not at all the only place in Scripture where we see this crying out. And it's not just angels who cry out in this way. Psalm 13, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Or Psalm 7410, How long, O God, will the adversary revile and the enemy spurn your name forever? Psalm 79, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Psalm 80, 
O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with the prayer of your people? Psalm 89, how long, O Lord, will you hide your face forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Psalm 94, how long shall the wicked, O Lord, how long shall the wicked exult? How long? And surely at that moment, Daniel's ears have peaked up. How long? It's gut-wrenching for him to hear and recognize what's on the verge of happening. And the answer is surprisingly specific. Verse 14, he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. The time period, some translations say 2,300 days. It's not an exact translation. It's not the better translation. The time here is based on the worship of God. It's not altogether that different in our day, those of us who mark our weeks based on the first day of the week and coming to worship God. There was a morning sacrifice and an evening sacrifice, 2,300 evening and mornings. 2,300 times That God is not worshipped, but rather blasphemed. And then, and only then, will the holy place be properly restored. Now it wasn't that Antiochus Epiphanes put a chain on the door and said no one can go in. No, he went in, sacrificed a pig on the altar, an offense to God and to his people, and set Zeus up. To be worshipped. Again, the recorded history of these events, the 2,300 evenings and mornings, the recorded history matches these prophetic details from Daniel's pen. The blasphemy stayed in place for about three years until it was removed and the holy temple was cleansed and rededicated to the Lord. And it was limited then for the sake, the the limited, the the time limit. Why only 2,300 days? God did it for the sake of his name. He was being blasphemed. And for the sake of his people, because they were being persecuted. This rededication of the temple is actually known as the Feast of Hanukkah. The Jews still celebrate Hanukkah. This is what they are recognizing, the end of that blasphemy that was initiated by Antiochus Epiphanes. So a takeaway from this prediction, a prophecy of 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the holy place being restored. Here's what God is saying through Daniel. The suffering that will come will not be short. Over three years. But he's also saying this. The suffering that will come will not last forever. You will be restored. The holy place and the host will be properly restored. Which brings us to the interpretation of the vision. Which really ought to mean that the rest of the chapter is pretty easy to understand. I found that I needed an interpreter for the interpretation. (laughs) 
It is helpful if we remember what the London Baptist Confession says regarding this. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And we've allowed that to happen even within the context of this book or even in this specific chapter. We've seen it already. Now, thinking about the way these things play out, again, the chronology of Daniel is difficult. Daniel saw the vision in chapter 7 and this vision that we're looking at this week from chapter 8. He saw them before he ever set foot into Belshazzar's palace where the finger of God had inscribed on the wall. Which helps us understand then why Daniel knew what was going on. God had been speaking to him. He had been spending time with God and God had shown him what was coming. He knew that the reigning kingdom was about to be wiped out. Verse 16, I heard the voice of a man. He called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. The voice of a man speaking to an angel. Whose voice? A man. The man. The God-man. The pre-incarnate Christ. Hey, Gabriel, explain to Daniel what's going on. Let him know how bad it's going to be, but let him know how good it will get. So he came near, verse 17, where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Not the end of time, but the time of the end of the coming persecution. The end of the reign of Antiochus IV, the end of the persecution, the end of the suffering, not the end of time altogether. That was chapter 7 in the big picture. This is a a narrow slice of time in chapter 8 that we're considering. Continuing verse 18, while Gabriel was talking with me, Daniel says, I sank into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. He touched me, made me stand upright. He said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. I fell into a deep sleep. Again, we see evidence of Daniel being so overwhelmed by the information that he is coming into contact with that he passes out. The angel has to reach down and say, no time for sleeping, stand up. I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation. God's indignation for his people's rebellion against him. It's coming to an end. Restoration is coming eventually, just not as soon as we would like. And he goes on, it pertains to the appointed time of the end. The appointed time. This is that, and, and that's where we hear the promise and the encouragement. We, we've got to listen for it, though, or, or, we, or we end up just sinking into despair. The time of the end has been appointed. God is in control of when the suffering stops. And, and that's what is being communicated here from Gabriel, who's explaining to Daniel the vision from God, is that there's a, an appointed time God already knows He's in complete control of all that is happening. And as we pick up in verse 20, it fills in some of the gaps in our our understanding of Daniel's vision. And we've cherry-picked from there already and filled in some of those aspects. It tells us about the ram and the goat and the conspicuous horn and the four horns and the rather small horn. 
The ram, as we said, was Media and Persia, and the goat is Greece, and the conspicuous horn between the two eyes of the goat was Alexander the Great, who was the first king, and then the four horns, we mentioned them, who replaced Alexander the Great, and then this rather small horn, Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, in verse 23 through 26, really describes in detail some of the specifics about what this man will be like. Reading it on this side of his actions, we're reading exactly how he was. Insolent and skilled and intrigue. He will destroy to an extraordinary degree. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people through his shrewdness. He will cause deceit to succeed. He will magnify himself. He'll destroy many while they're at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes. But that glorious conjunction. But he will be broken without human agency. And God did. He took out Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, with a swift Miserable disease. There is nothing that all his military might could do. When God said, the appointed time is here, he took him out. Now, as we've seen this pattern of horns, powers, kings, and kingdoms rising up and falling, the strength of the horns is not what should impress us, but rather their fragility. They look strong one minute, and the next thing you know, they're gone. Just completely removed. Such widespread destruction, and then a swift end, again and again. And this has continued throughout history. Some of you are probably familiar with the Nuremberg Trials at the end of World War II. Some of Hitler's contemporaries... Hitler and a handful of others were cowards and took themselves out, didn't stand trial. The ones who did stand trial were found guilty, executed by hanging, and then bust to Munich, cremated, and their ashes driven an hour out and poured into a river. Three years ago, the most powerful men on the planet, destroying people and families and countries just washed away in the darkness of one night. And time and again, horns have raised up. People have been raised up. Kings and kingdoms have been raised up. And their strength is not what is impressive. It's their fragility. God can take them out. And he has. And he will continue to. What do we do with Daniel chapter 8? Do we just read it as mere history or a true prophecy or interesting apocalyptic literature? Do we see it as future reality for us? I suppose we still have the option of avoiding it altogether. If you can remove everything that I've said in the past 40 minutes. This book as a whole... And this chapter specifically is a book and a chapter of Christian comfort and spiritual realism. So I'm suggesting that we attempt to take and believe and apply the truths that we find here. Noting that 
the little horn of chapter 7 and the small horn of chapter 8 are different individuals. One has already come, Antiochus Epiphanes, and one is yet to come, the man of lawlessness in the inn. Yet they are both one in the same thing. They are both antichrists. They're against God and his people. They're against Christ and Christ's people. So how can they be one in the same thing if they're different people? Remember 1 John 2.18, children, it is the last hour, the apostle writes. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. And all Antichrists have these traits in common. The traits began in the garden with Adam and Eve. And they will continue to the end of time as we know it. And they will be doing what Antiochus did, persecuting the people of God, opposing the person of God, and seeking to eradicate the worship of God. Where you see those things happening, even in our world, they are anti-Christ. But it's important to remember that these anti-Christs All they ever are are little small horns in the face of our mighty God. History ebbs and flows. These kings come and go, but the word of our Lord stands forever. They are little small horns at best. And God, our God, removes all lesser horns with omnipotent ease. The only difference about the last Antichrist is where he is in line. Did you notice Daniel's reaction when Gabriel approached him? Verses 17 and 18. He's terrified. He's in the presence of a sinless being in the midst of his vision. He falls to his face because he knows how sinful he is. Listen, this is only an angel. Imagine what will happen when we come face to face with the creator of the universe. He's described in the Bible as a horn as well. Luke 169, Zacharias is praising God that he has raised up a horn of salvation from us, for us in the house of David, his servant. This horn, this horn of salvation is a reference to Christ who was soon to be born, already conceived. All the horns of world history will one day lie broken at the feet of the horn of our salvation, Christ the Lord. He's not a two-horned, lopsided ram or a conspicuous, one-horned goat, but rather a lamb, the Lamb of God, who took away the sin of the world, who took away your sin and my sin. Worthy is this Lamb who was slain. Worthy is He to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. This Lamb will reign forever and ever. Amen. This is why, because this lamb reigns and will reign, this is why we as God's people must be committed to carrying on the king's business. Even when the prognosis is difficult to comprehend, as it was for Daniel. These are terribly somber visions For Daniel to see and for us to read about and try to understand. But the 
somber reality of the visions is not intended to produce defeatist attitudes in us. Because we don't just see the strength of all these kings. We see their fragility. And we see the omnipotence of our king who reigns forever and ever. So as a result, we get up day after day and we go to work or we go to school and we work hard and we clean the house and we get the groceries and we pay the bills. We seek the Lord and we do not forsake assembling together and we promote the spreading of the gospel and we evangelize our friends and family and neighbors and co-workers and classmates. This is how we carry on with the king's business. Living by faith in the Son of God who loves us and gave himself for us will not allow the anxieties of life to dominate us to the point of falling into despair. No matter our situation, no matter our circumstances, the king's work must go on. We must continue carrying on the king's business. The certainty of the Antichrist's coming should produce a seriousness in us. And the certainty of his removal should make us just as joyful. So we carry on with the king's business, confident in the message of God, confident in the promises of God, confident in the Son of God, who is Christ our King. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word, that you have preserved it for us, provided it to us. And God, we pray that you would help us both in understanding it and living based on the truths that we find in it. God, we thank you for your kindness in showing us the difficulties that lie ahead and the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us as we travel through those difficulties. Your kindness is remarkable. Your love for us is amazing. God, help us in our response. Give us grace that we might appropriate faith that we might believe you, being increasingly committed to walking close with you, that we might get up again and again and carry on with Christ our King's business. Until we see him face to face, God, give us the grace to live ever before him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.